to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Those of you who have been listening to this show for the last few weeks know that I have no problem laughing and making fun at the foolishness that seems to always go along with politics these days on both sides. But what we are seeing today, my friends, is no laughing matter. We are in the middle of a national crisis that is receiving remarkably little attention. But it is a crisis of incredible importance because the future of our nation depends upon the outcome. So I'm going to talk seriously for a bit. America is at a crossroads. And it is an historic crossroads. Never before in all of American history have we come so close to so much dystopia in national politics that it could lead very quickly to total anarchy. The dysfunction in Congress today, where Democrats and Republicans haven't been able to get very much done over the last two years, is leading us down the road to a place from which we may not be able to recover. So let me be more specific. In order to disqualify the results of the last presidential election, in which their candidate, Hillary Clinton, lost, both the candidate and the Democratic National Committee paid a reported $5 million dollars for the creation of a fabricated dossier that was, according to its author, total fiction. I can imagine listening to him and his friends sitting around, maybe over some drinks, and laughing as they tweaked the scenarios that they crafted out of thin air. Stupid, vulgar scenarios that were hardly credible on their face. But this phony dossier was so damning to Donald Trump and his campaign that it was used to justify three FISA warrants that enabled the government to spy on American citizens. And it also led to the appointment of a special counsel and the beginning of the Mueller investigation that lasted almost two years and cost the American taxpayers $35 million dollars. The Mueller team should have been staffed by people who were unbiased, as unbiased as it was possible to find in this highly politicized climate. But in fact, the team included 17 registered Democrats, some of whom had made sizable contributions to Hillary Clinton and to other Democrat candidates and causes. So there was no bias here, of course. That's meant to be sarcastic. I guess you got that. And the committee contained very few Republicans. That even this biased team could not come up with any legal claim against the president was astonishing to almost everybody. And particularly to the liberal left in general and the Democrats in Congress in particular. In their disbelief and their absolute rage at the conclusions of the investigation, they accelerated their wacky behavior and showed their frustration and their hatred of Donald Trump in a variety of really bizarre ways. 
even before the report was released, congressional leaders demanded that the whole Mueller report be made public, even though that might expose sensitive and even classified information that could endanger people's lives. And when the redacted version was released, as promised, they renewed their demand for an unredacted report. Attorney General Barr then provided them with almost everything they wanted, with only the very most sensitive parts still redacted. When that was released, it was placed in a secure room called a skiff, and everybody was invited to come and read it. But guess what? Not one of the Democrats came. Not one. Then they wanted to interview Attorney General Barr himself. And he agreed to that. So on May 2nd, he appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee. They interviewed him for several hours. And during that hearing, Senator Richard Blumenthal, uh, he's a Democrat from Connecticut, said the following. I think, in qu this is in quotes, I think history will judge you harshly and maybe a bit unfairly because you seem to have been the designated fall guy for this report, unquote. That such an insulting remark should be made by a sitting senator to a voluntary witness of such stature, it's appalling. But Blumenthal had already gone much further because after the Mueller report was released, he posted on his official website the following statement, and I quote, This report is a detailed, deeply damning portrait of criminal wrongdoing and national scandal. President Trump and his associates sold out our democracy and welcomed help through Russia's illegal actions during the 2016 campaign. When federal law enforcement came too close to the truth, he tried to shut them down. The report makes clear that President Trump lied repeatedly to mislead the American people and halt the machinery of justice." Unquote. And then Blumenthal attacked the Attorney General himself when he said, quote, Attorney General Barr has disgracefully weaponized the Mueller report for apparent political gain. Attorney General Barr's actions are a betrayal of his oath of office our Constitution, and the American people." Unquote. That Blumenthal, a sitting senator who has been there for I don't know how many years, that he should say such a thing that is so full of lies that it is appalling, it is infuriating. His comments completely disregarded the actual conclusions of the report and seemed to respond to what he wanted the report to say, that Donald Trump was guilty and that A.G. Bard had somehow misrepresented the findings of the report. The report found that Donald Trump was not guilty and that Barr had not misrepresented anything. But let's get back to the hearings for a minute. The Congressional Judiciary Committee wasn't satisfied with Barr's answer to the Senate committee, so they demanded that he appear before them as well 
on the following day and submit to interrogation. But, as they tend to do when they are losing, they changed the rules. They stipulated that he would not be questioned by congressmen, as is the long, unbroken tradition in Congress, but by a committee of staff lawyers. Now remember, my friends, never in the history of this country has anyone, particularly not a member of the president's cabinet, but not anyone, ever been asked to appear to answer questions in a committee by subordinates of congressional or Senate committee members. Never. The move was clearly meant to humiliate and demean the Attorney General and to diminish the value of his testimony. So appropriately, Barr refused to appear. And when he did that, under those extraordinary circumstances, the Democrats doubled down on their own disgraceful behavior. Committee Chairman Congressman Jerry Nadler, Democrat from New York, who has been leading the charge in Congress against Barr, he threatened to cite Barr for contempt of Congress. In short, just as they harassed President Trump unceasingly for nearly two years, now they're harassing Attorney General William Barr because he supported the findings of the Mueller report which found no collusion and no obstruction of justice on the part of the president or his campaign. The Democrats simply will not accept defeat, and in light of the fact that the investigation found no collusion, they're now looking for something else, anything else, to justify their appetite for impeaching the president. To say that the Democrats have jumped the shark and gone right off the deep end since the release of the Mueller report would be to put it mildly. Just in the last few days, the tone of the rhetoric coming out of the Democrats' camp has been so hysterical and so childish, even obscene, that it is difficult to comment on it dispassionately. But I will try because I think that this is something we need to discuss calmly, rationally, and with the goal of achieving some understanding that might possibly, possibly lead to a solution. Because the alternative, my friends, is unthinkable and unacceptable. So let me give you an example of the kind of breakdown that I'm talking about. When Attorney General Barr refused to submit to the indignity of appearing before the Judiciary Committee to answer questions not by the congressmen but by their staffers, he was mocked by Representative Steve Cohen, Democrat from Tennessee. He brought a large bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken to his seat in the committee. He called Barr a chicken for not appearing. And then he began shoveling the greasy fried chicken into his mouth with his fingers in a disgusting display of bad manners and questionable upbringing. And then, to add more disgrace upon himself and his party, he demanded that Barr be detained, physically detained, and brought by force to testify before the committee. He proved that not only is he gauche and ill-mannered, but that he does not understand the role he is supposed to be filling and his exaggerated sense of his own self-importance 
is mind-boggling. Okay, here's another example of something that happened this past week that was an affront to civil discourse, but got a pass by the Democrats anyway. The question of right to life versus a woman's right to choose is one in which there are two sides to the argument. Neither the right nor the left believes that the arguments supporting the other side are legitimate. In general, the left believes that a woman has the unequivocal right to decide whether or not to abort an unborn child. They say that a woman's body is her own and that she gets to decide whether to give birth or to abort. The argument on the right, on the other hand, is simple. They believe, with equal passion, that aborting an unborn child is simply murder and that the question of abortion should not be in the equation. It's a question that must still be resolved even though Road v. Way was decided way back in 1992 by the Supreme Court in favor of legalizing the right of a woman to have an abortion. But there is a large constituency in this country that is still ready to challenge that decision. So the discussion is really far from over. And the Supreme Court has been known to reverse earlier decisions witness the Dred Scott decision. Congressman John Rogers, a Democrat from Alabama, made this issue so disgustingly personal that he should have offended just about everybody. He called Donald Trump Jr., quote, retarded, unquote, and said this about Trump Jr.'s existence on earth. He said, quote, him being born is the very good defense that I have for abortion. His mother should have aborted him when he was born. Unquote. And he also said more generically, quote, Some kids are unwanted, so you kill them now or you kill them later. Unquote. This congressman is pathetically gauche and crude and just plain nasty. He does no credit either to Congress or to the people who elected him to serve there. And yet there he sits. You know, there is something very important happening right now, and it's something we need to pay special attention to. Attorney General William Barr has launched his own informal inquiry about the origin of the Russian investigation. The Attorney General said he is taking seriously some of the criticisms about the way the FBI and the Justice Department conducted their investigations into the events leading up to the Mueller investigation. They have alleged abuse of power as well as bias by the FBI and the DOJ. Beginning with the sources of the infamous dossier, the use of fraudulent material to apply for FISA warrants that led to the spying on the Trump campaign, into what role the Secretary of State Hillary Clinton played in all this? And how far up the political ladder did this intrigue go? Did President Obama know about it, as one of the Texan FBI lawyer Lisa Page indicated? And who else is involved? We're at a very interesting point in American history, my friends. 
At the same time, we are facing the most serious political crisis in American history. We are watching a dramatic shift in the political tide. We are angry that it has taken so long until we finally have a leader in the White House who is ready to lead and an attorney general who is ready to uncover that corruption so that we may return to our national values. Today we are standing at one of the greatest crossroads in the history of our country. And we are out to save the Republic. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. But don't go away. Stay right where you are because I will be right back. And we will talk about something completely different. The Out Loud Perspective awaits you in life, love, politics, a healthy lifestyle, your faith, personal development, and living an out loud life on AmericaOutloud.com. Glitcher News and Entertainment Network, where you can listen 24-7 on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. before about how we need to learn from history. But somehow, as our country's political agenda plays out on the national stage, we seem to be learning very little indeed. Yesterday, I read an article about how far over the edge the social justice warriors and the liberals have gone in their efforts to reform American history by erasing the parts that offend them. They want to align American history with their current views of what is right and what is wrong. Let's talk for a minute about the statues that represent the South in America's Civil War. The social warriors want to take them out of the public space, or better yet, destroy them. While most of the statues that have already been removed or face removal in states from Georgia to Montana were of Southern leaders like Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis. We have also heard about American students who want to tear down statues of American heroes like Thomas Jefferson and, and George Washington because they were slave owners. New York City's mayor, Bill de Blasio, has called for a review of all the city's public art in order to identify what he calls symbols of hate for possible removal. Moving from the naive to the ridiculous, the Philadelphia Flyers and the New York Yankees recently removed statues from their public space of Kate Smith, the woman who made the song God Bless America, a beloved song across the nation. She recorded it in 1939. Now, in her day, Kate Smith was called the First Lady of Radio. She was an iconic American singer, and she was loved throughout the country. And Americans loved that song, God Bless America, Land That We Love. So why should her memory be erased? That song was played at every ball game and on the radio, and everywhere you went where there was a public event, 
God Bless America was played and sung by everybody. But one anonymous person said that in her long career, she sang racist songs. And it's true, she did. Some of the songs she sang back then would be considered highly offensive today by any standard, and their words don't bear repeating here. But at the time, back in the 1930s, many entertainers sang songs like this and sang in blackface, and most people weren't sensitive to how much this kind of so-called entertainment hurt. And it wasn't just about black Americans. It was also about the Chinese and Jewish Americans and others who took their share of the hurt. But back in the 1930s, before equality initiatives were even being thought of, being openly bigoted regarding blacks and Chinese and Jews and others was highly acceptable in the very best of society. And in some circles it was required, long before political correctness became a thing. And that's the point. If we're going to learn from history, we have to look at it in context. We need to understand the mores of the time and put the events that happened then in perspective. Think about how far we've come in 240 years. My gosh, we once accepted slavery as part of the country's economic life and it was not only acceptable, it was, or so they thought, essential. Well, of course, they were dead wrong. The idea of owning another human being is absolutely abhorrent to any decent person. Although, you do know that slavery is still practiced all around the world today, as we found out from ISIS only a few years ago. Anyway, the southern plantation owners found out that when slavery was no longer an option for them, they could manage, and they did. And thank God for that. Now, the northerners were no angels either. Captains of industry built the sweatshops of the garment industry, where immigrant workers, including very young children, slaved over sewing machines for endless hours, for pennies while Northern society accepted and largely ignored their existence. My point is that so long as such practices were acceptable, because people were not yet sensitive to the evils of slavery and sweatshops, or they didn't care, the climate of our nation was such that many people who owned slaves and sweatshops thrived at the expense of others. That's how it was. And yet these people, who were so insensitive to the suffering of others, were nevertheless able to contribute to the building of this great nation. And they did. So here's the point. The fact that we were able to abolish slavery and sweatshops as a part of our national growth is part of what made this country great. We learned from our history and we made our lives and the lives of all Americans better because of it. So when we look at history, it's essential that we look through the prism of the times. History is messy and complicated, and sometimes it's downright vicious and ugly. But if we abolish our memory of what we did wrong throughout our history, if we erase it so that we don't have to look at our national pain, we will make the same mistakes or similar ones in the future. 
cruel mistakes as we move forward. One of the most ironic repetitions that we have seen in the past few years is one that I have mentioned before. When liberal black students at universities around the country were faced with the Trump campaign in 2016, some of them experienced a psychological meltdown. It's not even clear why, but that's apparently what happened. They somehow felt threatened, and they demanded what they called safe spaces where they could shelter with people just like them and feel safe from people whose history and opinions differed from their own. But what they were really doing, and here's the irony, was reverting back to the very thing that their parents and their grandparents had fought so hard to escape, segregation. Only this time it was self-imposed. So rather than learning from history, they were repeating it by imposing segregation on themselves. Now, I have invited Greg the Storyteller back to tell us another story from our American history. It's not about race relations or about segregation. It is about excellence and what we can learn from that. And it is about war, which brings out the worst and the best in us. This story is about what is now called targeted assassination in the midst of battle. Israel has used it in the past and then discontinued it and is now using it again, and I'll talk about that later on. Most nations have used this in one way or another in most wars. War, as they say, is hell. But many people, particularly those who have never been in a war, condemn the practice. Still, most soldiers who have seen battle consider targeted killings an essential practice under certain circumstances. And when your own life and the life of your comrades are on the line, well, you want to do what is necessary. So let me invite Greg the Storyteller back to the microphone. Hi, Greg. Good to see you back here. Tell us the story of Timothy Murphy. Hi, I'm Greg the Storyteller. And today, I'd like to tell you about Timothy Murphy and the Battle of Saratoga. I should start by saying that not everybody believes this story is true. I read on Wikipedia, for example, that maybe the story didn't actually happen. And if you can't trust Wikipedia, who can you trust? But then a different Wikipedia page says that it did happen and gives lots of details. Go figure. Anyway, the Battle of Saratoga was a crucial turning point in the American Revolutionary War. The British were hoping to converge on Saratoga, New York, from three directions. From Champlain Valley in the north, from New York City in the south, and from Lake Ontario in the west in an attempt to cut off New England from the southern states. Had they succeeded, they would have cut the United States in half, and very likely won the war. As it turned out, though, the American forces won the Battle of Saratoga, providing the new nation with its first major victory over the British. That, in turn, persuaded the French to offer assistance to American forces, which was a major factor in the eventual victory. So, you can see how important the Battle of Saratoga was for both sides. But did you know that a turning point of the battle rested in the hands of one man, a 26-year-old illiterate son of Irish immigrants named Timothy Murphy. Timothy had been fighting the British for a while. He had joined up in 1775, and he saw action in the Siege of Boston and the Battle of Long Island. He was promoted to sergeant, and in 1777, he joined Daniel Morgan's riflemen because of his skill as an expert marksman. You see, Colonel Daniel Morgan 
had been tasked by General George Washington to put together a special unit of expert riflemen, what today we would call snipers. In order to march with Colonel Morgan, you needed to show that you could shoot a pumpkin at 250 yards. Think about that for a moment. 250 yards, two and a half football fields long, and you're aiming at a pumpkin, which looks to you like a pinprick. It seems impossible. But Daniel Morgan recruited soldiers who could do it. By 1777, he marched to Saratoga with 500 expert riflemen, including Sergeant Timothy Murphy. American forces fought the British twice at Saratoga, once on September 19th at the Battle of Freeman's Farm, and once on October 7th at Bemis Heights. The first battle was a victory for the British, albeit a very costly one. They lost over 600 soldiers, twice the number of Americans lost, and the American force had been bigger to start with. It seemed certain that the British would try again, which they did 18 days later. The British were fighting with the time-honored tactics they knew. Large forces marching in precise formations, shooting volley fire on command with, from their brown best muskets. The British soldiers were not accurate shooters because they didn't have to be. The terrifying volley of hundreds of musket balls, all fired at once and coming straight at you, was devastating and very effective. But the Americans were farmers and hunters, using the newly invented Kentucky rifles. They were deadly accurate, because they had to be, to put dinner on their family's tables. And no one was more accurate than the sharpshooters of Daniel Morgan's riflemen. And so, while the British marched in their precise formations, Colonel Morgan's marksmen did their best to pick off the British officers from a distance. This must have seemed terribly unfair to the British, who were not at all used to such tactics. This situation came to a head on October 7, 1777, at Bemis Heights. During a temporary lull in the fighting, the British forces were regrouping. One British officer, Brigadier General Simon Fraser, was known to be a genius at rallying his troops. The American forces, some 300 yards away, saw this. And Fraser was recognized by an American officer, General Benedict Arnold, who would soon become famous for something else entirely. But on that day, he spotted the British General Fraser. He spoke to Daniel Morgan and reportedly said, That man is General Fraser. He alone is worth a regiment. I admire him greatly, but it is necessary that he should die today. Do your duty. Morgan understood, and he called on Timothy Murphy. Murphy then climbed a tree and asked for someone to hand him up a loaded rifle. It is believed that he had a rifle with two barrels, capable of firing two shots. He took careful aim at General Fraser from 300 yards away and fired. His first shot grazed the general's horse, so he took aim again and fired again. His second shot caught the general right in the chest and knocked him clean off his horse. By some accounts, as the general lay dying, he himself identified that it was Murphy who had shot him. He said that he saw an American climb a tree, and he would never have believed that anyone could be so accurate at such a distance. At this point, the aide-de-camp to all the British forces in Saratoga, senior officer Sir Francis Clerk, came galloping onto the field. 300 yards away, Timothy Murphy saw this and said, Somebody hand me up another rifle. He took aim, and he killed Clerk, too. This seriously spooked the British forces. By now they must have thought the Americans could reach out, invisibly, and pick them off at will. They fought on, somehow, but by nightfall the British had retreated and would surrender to the Americans a few days later. And that was the first major American victory over the British, which persuaded the French to join the fight on the American side, which was crucial to the eventual American victory. All thanks to Timothy Murphy. Thank you, Greg. That was quite a story. Wow. I can't imagine how much skill it must have taken for Timothy Murphy to have been so accurate given the weapon he must have been using in the 18th century and given that he was shooting from the top of a tree.
But it does teach us something about excellence and about how one man, who is really very good at what he does, can have a huge difference on the outcome of much bigger events. When I look back on our national history and the wars that we endured to keep our country safe and to make it possible for our nation to grow and thrive, I have to acknowledge that without the sacrifice of those who came before me, I wouldn't be here today doing what I'm doing, talking to you now about how we got here and where we're going next. Because every piece of history, good or bad, kind or cruel, is a tiny piece of a much larger tapestry that has shaped us individually and as a nation. And each piece of history leads to another piece of history and connects to something else. And these connections are what make our history viable. But now we have a problem. Over the last few decades, we have deprived our children, most of them, from the education that would help them navigate the tough paths and challenges that life throws at us. We forgot to teach them history and civics. We stopped teaching them how to compete, how to be a good sport, how to succeed when the going gets tough. Instead, we taught them that everyone is equal, that everyone wins, that you don't need to be excellent, you don't need to compete, you only need to show up and you get a prize. So now our children are all grown up and they're marching in the street demanding for themselves what we had to work so hard for. They, who never studied history, are demanding that we change ours because it hurts their feelings. They're rejecting excellence in education and replacing it with poor grammar, social media, and feel-good classes and dumbed-down curricula in order to accommodate the increased diversity in the student body. And now they're demanding that we change the very infrastructure of our great republic and turn to socialism instead. I talked about our being at a crossroads before. This is a part of it. Timothy Murphy was unschooled, uneducated by traditional standards, but he excelled in one thing, his marksmanship, and that skill made a huge difference in achieving and keeping America's independence. Today we have to take a stand against mediocrity. We need to work hard to achieve the kind of excellence that will help America grow. Where we have failed our children in not teaching them to strive and to compete in order to succeed, we must now set the example ourselves in order to save our republic. Think about this, my friends, because our lives and the lives of our children and their children and the kind of country that they live in will depend on it. Well, we have to take a short break now, but don't go away. I'll be right back, and we will talk about the events of this past weekend with Hamas's horrendous attack on Israel. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. 
There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. I'm Dr. Ron Martinelli. And I'm Linda Martinelli. As former law enforcement officers, we know that your life and the lives of those you love and work with can change in an instant when you encounter an active shooter. Unfortunately, in today's world of uncertainty, encountering an armed active shooter can have deadly consequences. That's why the key to survival is training and preparedness. And that's why we want to invite our listeners to seriously consider taking our Response to Active Shooter training course. Violence can happen to you anytime and anywhere and when you least expect it. Having a response and survival plan and engaging it can be the difference between life and death for you or a family member. Our Response to Active Shooter courses are customized for the corporate, school, church, restaurant, and small business environment at a reasonable budget that fits your needs. So don't put this life-saving training off because you don't think it will ever happen to you. We call those people victims. Our Response to Active Shooter instructors are all nationally renowned tactical law enforcement experts who will guide you through the life-saving protocols you'll need to survive an active shooter event. So be a victor, not a victim. Go to responsetoactiveshooter.com to learn more today. Remember, that's all one word, responsetoactiveshooter.com, and be safe out there. Welcome back. Now, I have a different kind of story to tell you. It doesn't have a happy ending. In fact, it doesn't have any ending at all because... It's still going on. It was early Saturday morning in the land of Israel. It was Shabbat, the Sabbath, a day of rest, a day of peace and quiet for the people of Israel. But there was neither peace nor quiet on the morning of Saturday, May 4th, when the red alert sirens began to wail. The sirens let them know they had 15 seconds to get to a bomb shelter. 15 seconds. The sirens went on and on for two days. And before it was over, nearly 700 rockets, missiles, and mortar shells were fired into heavily populated areas of southern Israel. And it went on for nearly 48 hours. These rockets were a message from Hamas in Gaza. They said, we will drive you Jews into the sea. We will destroy you. Can you even imagine what that must have been like? It's as though the state of Vermont, tiny little Vermont, were being bombarded with hundreds of rockets within the space of two days, fired randomly from New Hampshire, aiming at the city or town you live in, and you never know 
where the next one will hit. Four Israelis died in this barrage of rockets and mortars. Moshe Agadi, who was 58 and the father of four, was killed by shrapnel when a Hamas rocket made a direct hit on his home. Moshe Feder, 64, was killed on his way to work when a Cornet anti-tank guided missile struck his car on a road near the Gaza border. Ziad al-Hamamda, 47 years old, was killed when a rocket struck the factory where he worked. He was a resident of the Bedouin village of Sawawan in the south of Israel, and he was a Muslim. And finally, Pechas Menachem Perzwazman, 21, a young father of one and an American Israeli. He died in a barrage of rockets aimed more or less at his home. It was one of dozens of rockets aimed at the southern Israeli cities of Sterot, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Yavne, Gadera, and Beersheba, which have a combined population of 600,000 residents. Do these names sound familiar to you? Well, of course. They were all cities that are mentioned in the Bible. So none of these deaths were accidental. One way or another, they were very intentional. Once the rocket fire began on Saturday morning, Israel immediately launched more than 300 retaliatory airstrikes. 23 Gazans were killed in the airstrikes, including 19 who were positively identified as members of the terrorist groups operating in Gaza. Egypt offered to mediate, and at 4.30 Monday morning local time, an Egyptian-led ceasefire went into effect. But it was premature because it only gave Hamas time to regroup and begin to fight again when they are ready to re-engage. This is an old story, one we've seen time and time again. The brief pounding that Israel gave to Hamas did nothing to deter the terrorists from firing more rockets against Israeli targets when they are good and ready. Hamas has been a source of intermittent attacks against Israel for many years. And these attacks took a toll. They weren't just attacks on property. Between 2004 and 2014, in those 10 years, these attacks killed 27 Israeli citizens, five foreign nationals, five IDF soldiers, and at least 11 Palestinians, and they injured nearly 2,000 people. But the main effect of these unexpected and sudden bombardments is their creation of a widespread psychological trauma, a community trauma, and the disruption of daily life among Israelis. You know, it's interesting. A medical study was carried out in the town of Sterot, which is the Israeli city closest to the Gaza Strip. And what this study showed was that the incidence of a post-traumatic stress disorder among young children was almost 50%. Now, when you confront uh, Hamas with its terrorist activities, they're going to tell you 
that they are the victims and they're simply responding to Israeli repression and the uh, laws that restrict their activity. But when their activities are terrorist acts upon Israeli civilians and the goods that they want Israel to allow into Gaza like, like cement and steel that are supposed to be used for reconstruction but are actually used for the building of terrorist tunnels and bombs and rockets, one can understand Israel's reluctance to lift the ban on such imports. It, and they do that anyway, and they do allow some cement in, and it is used to build terror tunnels. So this isn't about Hamas being victimized by Israel, and that isn't why they hate us. This is about Hamas being determined to fulfill their dream to destroy the Jewish state and then take the land that is now Israel as a Muslim conquest for Allah. In the process of their continual war with Israel, they sow the seeds of terror in every encounter that they have with their Jewish neighbor. Now, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has come under blistering criticism for accepting the ceasefire instead of ending the threat from Hamas once and for all. The Israeli people have had enough, but Netanyahu has assured his people that the rules of the game have changed. He told them that it was clear that this is not the end of the campaign, and he has therefore given instructions to prepare for what will come next. He's given directives, he said, to leave armored and artillery forces around the Gaza Strip. Now, if you haven't lived in the Middle East, and I suspect that's probably most of you, you may need a bit of translation. Netanyahu was referring to, among other things, Israel's long discontinued policy of targeted assassinations of terrorist leaders. He has just announced that this policy has now been reinstated. And the first of these targeted assassinations was of a Hamas commander as he was riding in his car. His name was Hamad al-Kadori, and he was responsible for transferring large amounts of money to Hamas's military wing through his international connections. By deploying Israeli armored and artillery forces around Gaza, Netanyahu is giving Hamas a strong message that Israel will not give up any military prerogative if there is another attack on Israel's civilian population. One source from Hamas told an Israeli newspaper that the attack was in retaliation for Israel's delay in implementing a ceasefire that had been agreed upon several weeks ago. But the truth is that Hamas is lying. It doesn't get any plainer than that. Hamas doesn't want peace, and it doesn't need an excuse to start a war. Their entire purpose is enshrined in their charter in Article 6, where it says, quote, The Islamic resistance movement is a distinct Palestinian movement which owes its loyalty to Allah, derives from Islam its way of life, and strives to raise the banner of Allah over every inch of Palestine, unquote. There's no room for compromise there, or for negotiations, and certainly not for a ceasefire. In fact, in Article 13 of the same document, it says, quote, 
There is no solution for the Palestinian question except through jihad. Initiatives, proposals, and international conferences are all a waste of time and vain endeavors. Unquote. Peace efforts between Israel and Hamas have failed time and time again because Hamas's basic ideology prohibits negotiation or compromise. The goal of the organization, as it was described explicitly in its charter, was and continues to be the violent destruction of Israel and the creation of an Islamic state in its place. And as one official said, we negotiate only through the rifle. Unquote. Like many other jihadi organizations, Hamas is driven by a deep passion defined and ruled by hate. It denies the historic claim of the Jewish people to the land that is now Israel, even though that connection goes back thousands of years. It denies their connection to the land that is documented in the Bible, which claims that a Jewish monarchy existed in Israel as early as the 10th century B.C. But if you don't want to take the Bible as a historical document, this history is also confirmed in the host of archaeological finds that show the continued presence of the Jewish people in the land for thousands of years. The artifacts, such as coins with Hebrew writing, for example, dating back to the days of King David, are still being discovered in Israel almost every day. One of Israel's prime ministers was an American, a woman, Golda Meir. I believe she grew up in Minneapolis. But anyway, she once said, Israel is the only country in the world where a child can dig in his backyard find a coin that is thousands of years old and read it, unquote. That's because the children of Israel, like the people of Israel today, speak Hebrew, and Hebrew is the language of the Bible. It's the language that was spoken thousands of years ago. These discoveries prove the constant Jewish presence in what is now Israel over a span of at least 3,000 years at least. Hamas even denies the extraordinarily well-documented murder of six million Jews in the Nazi Holocaust. And it also denies Israel's right to be a sovereign Jewish state. By denying Israel's history and its sovereignty, Hamas denies the country's basic right to exist, something explicitly stated in its founding charter. Hamas has defined its mission to, quote, reclaim, unquote, the land of, quote, Palestine, unquote. In other words, all the land that is now Israel. And they want to do that at all costs, for the Palestinian people only, and for Muslims only. But Hamas doesn't only attack its Jewish neighbors. It also victimizes its own people. Since Hamas took over the Gaza Strip, 12 years ago. It has siphoned off billions of dollars of humanitarian aid that countries around the world have donated to the people of Gaza for reconstruction, for their health and well-being, for their education, and so forth. Hamas has used that money to build its military, its terror tunnels through which to attack Israel, and to provide luxuries for its officers that the people of Gaza 
can only dream of. The average Gazan only receives a few hours of electricity a day, they have no access to clean water, and they struggle to survive and support a family. The unemployment rate in Gaza is an astonishing 50%. And the infrastructure that was more or less intact in 2007 when Hamas took over the governing of Gaza has now deteriorated to the extent that, for example, none of the five sewage treatment plants that operated in 2007 are now functioning. None of them. The money that should have gone to maintenance and repair went to other priorities like the ones I just mentioned, tunnels, weapons, and so forth. So Gaza now pumps, oh, this is so disgusting, I can't hardly say it, but I will, because you need to know it. We all need to know it. Gaza now pumps some 21 million gallons of raw sewage into the Mediterranean every day. And that is where Gazans who are seeking relief from the Mediterranean summer heat, since there's no electricity to run air conditioners, that is where Gazans go to swim. Now in recent weeks, many Gazans who are fed up with the way Hamas has treated them over the years have taken to the streets to protest. And they've been beaten, arrested, tortured, imprisoned for protesting. The war between Hamas and Israel is far from over. I think that it will be only a matter of weeks before the violence explodes again. The people of Israel have lost patience with Hamas for the continued harassment and danger and for their own government for not putting an end to this once and for all. In my experience, I have not seen ever such a dramatic reaction to what would normally be a welcome ceasefire. Israelis know that their government has the know-how, the intelligence, in the military sense of the word, and the military might to end this violence once and for all. The question is, and this is the question that Israelis ask every day, does the government have the will to do that? Well, we'll see. In the meantime, Israelis and Gazans have buried their dead, are repairing their damaged homes and communities, and are trying to get on with their lives. But the Israelis and the Gazans, they're not the same. The Israelis live in their sovereign country. They live freely. It's a democratic society where their voices can be heard, and their voices count for something, where the economy is thriving, and there are jobs, and food, and water, and housing. On the other hand, the Gazans live under tyranny, under a government that deprives them of the very basics of life, that keeps them impoverished and suppresses them violently if they try to rebel. The Gazans are the victims, but their oppressors are not the Israelis. Their oppressors are Hamas. Well, that's the end of today's show, my friends, and I'm so glad to have spent it with you. Thank you for joining me. I hope you have a great week. Don't forget to send me an email at ilana at americaoutloud.com. I want to hear from you. I want to hear if you agree, if you disagree. It's all good. 
and I'll look for you back here next Wednesday at 5 o'clock Eastern Time. You've been listening to The News Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. 